Hello and welcome to Quilt Achievement Markets Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and issues that we've been discussing here at Quilt Achievement. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you are listening on or by following hashtag QC weekly comment on LinkedIn. I'm Jack Bishop, investment manager based out of our Manchester office, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by regular commentator and head of fixed interest research, Richard Carter, alongside our financials analyst, Will Howlett. A very good morning to you both. Last week, despite very little in the way of macroeconomic data, all eyes instead were on chipmaker NVIDIA's quarterly results. Company reported earnings, which beat already quite lofty expectations and guided for the strong growth to continue, leading to the share price to jump over 16% on the day and briefly surpass the $2 trillion market cap uh, mark before pulling back slightly. The move added $277 billion to its market cap in a single day, eclipsing a record set by Meta, formerly Facebook, just a few weeks ago, who only managed to add a measly $197 uh, $197 billion. The increase in NVIDIA's market cap was equivalent to adding a Coca-Cola or a L'Oreal to its market cap, and as a result, has now leapfrogged Amazon and Alphabet to become the third largest US-listed company. Aside from results season, we did have the latest minutes uh, from the Federal Reserve in the US. And it does seem like Groundhog Day, Richard, but again, voter members pushed back on the expectation of any rate cuts imminently. And it's nothing we've not uh, already heard before. And they said that they remain highly attentive to the risk of resurgent inflation, which you could argue we have seen really in the recent consumer and producer price inflation. So overall, the minutes uh, and the Fed stance appear quite hawkish. Where does that leave us? on uh, interest rate cuts and has pricing been moving about recently? Yeah, you're right, Jack. I mean, it, it, the minutes, nothing we haven't really heard before. I mean, I mean, the data is still holding up pretty well, as you said. And, and um, you know, because of that, they're not they're not in any great rush to, to cut rates at the moment. Inflation is still a little bit too sticky. So, um, yeah, I mean, rate expectations since the start of the year have have changed a bit. I mean, at the start of the year, uh, the market was pricing in a lot more, you know, over 1% of rate cuts. Uh, they were expecting uh, a move in March. Um, that's now completely off the table. Uh, and things are a little bit more uh, realistic, I would say. So now the uh, first rate cut in the US and the UK is expected to be sort of mid to late summer. Uh, and overall, this expects to be around 75 basis points of cuts um, in 2024. So it's it's a bit more realistic, as I said, and it's a bit more in line with what the Fed's been saying. So arguably, that's not such a not not such a bad thing. And then supporting that stance, I guess, is weekly jobless claims in the US, which last week came in lower than expected, and the Fed's dual mandate of having both price stability and full employment. They therefore need to have confidence in the, in the data that they're using to make their forecasts. Contrast that to the UK, where the Bank of England's new Labour force survey won't be ready until September. So in the meantime, they're actually relying on a survey with a response rate of just 15% to estimate how the employment landscape looks in the UK and actually base their interest rate decisions on. So Richard, can you just provide us with a bit more detail on why it's important to get that data right and what the ONS and the Bank of England are doing to try and rectify this mess? Uh, yeah, uh, um, it's certainly the right time to use the old phrase, uh, lies, damn lies and statistics. And uh, with a lot of economic data, you do have to take 
uh, with a pinch of salt, and, and not least the UK employment numbers. Um, I mean, it's not. Um, yeah, the response rate to these surveys have been falling, not just here, actually. Post-COVID, they've been falling in the US and other places as well. So there is this bit of an issue about uh, getting reliable uh, jobs data in the UK that the Bank of England can use. And yeah, it's important. I mean, it's, it's they haven't got a dual mandate, you know, mentioned, you mentioned about the Fed, but, um, you know, the labour market is crucial to the economy and to the amount of slack in the economy and likely inflation pressures. So, you know, if you've got a very tight labour market, um, you know, the, the sort of scope for rate cuts is, is less, if you will, and that's obviously a particular issue at the moment. So the Bank of England needs to know how many people are at work and how many people um, could join it or, or, or whatever, so they can work out where they think inflation is going to be ultimately. Um, so they're in a, this, yeah, they're stuck in a bit of a bind while they wait for the ONS to uh, sort the survey out into something more reliable, um, which will, as you say, will take a few months. But they are um, having to rely on lots of different bits of data. And in some ways, it's no different to what we do. We don't just look at the jobs numbers, but we would also. You know, you'd look at surveys from, from recruiters, you would look at uh, PMI data on jobs, uh, and they'll also be looking at, um, uh, you know, sort of numbers produced by the HMRC in terms of payroll. So there, there is different things they can look at. Um, but yeah, it is a reminder to take some of it with a pinch of salt. And I think at least we can rely on the inflation numbers for now, but obviously they, they want to be looking two, three years out, which is why they need more information. Yeah, absolutely. And if we just turn our attention to politics over in the state, so it was another win over the weekend for Donald Trump in South Carolina's Republican primary. So he defeated Nikki Haley again, and this time in her home state by a margin of 20 points. Haley's vowed to continue fighting into Super Tuesday, which is next week on the 5th of March, uh, although the odds are stacked against her. But despite losing, 40% of Republicans still voted for her, meaning there is still a group of voters who probably won't vote for Trump. So do you think that could change the calculus for the upcoming, upcoming election? Yeah, as you say, I mean, she's she's um, she's probably going to get through Super Tuesday and then probably have to throw in the towel, I suspect. Uh, and... Um, uh, you know, depending on your politics, that's potentially quite a depressing uh, situation because it leaves the field open for, for Trump. Um, I mean, you're correct. There's still a sort of sizable majority um, voting for her. Whether they would then in the actual election switch to Biden uh, remains to be seen. I think um, some, you know, there are some parts of the Republican base who won't vote for uh, won't vote for Trump, and, and that would in, increase Biden's chances. But I, I suspect a lot of them will just switch their reluctantly switch their votes uh, to Trump uh, when November comes, if he's still in the race or it hasn't been sort of, you know, booted out because of his uh, his, his legal issues. But at, at the moment, um, the you know, I was looking at the um, there's a good website, Five Thirty Eight, uh, which is sort of you know, if you're interested in U.S. politics, it's worth a look, and um, that has. Trump marginally ahead of Biden uh, at the moment, but uh, clearly, you know, clearly a long way to go, and uh, uh, a lot could happen between now and November. But at the moment, he's still just about uh, the favourite, which I say is a bit depressing. 
Yeah, a few more twists and turns to come, I would imagine. And just one final question for you, Richard. I think it was reported last week that soon retail investors will be able to buy newly issued gilts in an effort to try and draw up demand for what will be a record issuance. So why is the debt management office having to resort to this? And can you give us an idea of the scale of that issuance and how it differs from how gilts are normally accessed by investors? Yeah, I mean, the... um... The the uh, DMO really needs uh, to look for as many sources of funding as possible because uh, the government's borrowing an awful lot of money. To be frank, uh, you know uh, the sort of legacy of COVID, I'm afraid, and various other things. Um, so they are, you know, the, the DMO issues at the moment roughly about 250 billion pounds worth of gilt. So any source of funding is is useful. Uh, although retail and private investors are a small part of the overall. Uh, pie really, it's sort of you know central banks, banks, insurance companies, pension funds who really take up the bulk of the uh, the amount. And, you know, Bank of England's got large holding as well, obviously. Um, but they are looking to diversify sources of funding. Um, you can buy gilts uh, normally, you know, as a private investor in the secondary market. Um, so gilts that are already been issued uh, and are now trading, you know, in the secondary market, you know, you might be buying those. Uh, or accessing them through funds, or or, or your you know your, your private client investment manager might be buying them for you. Um, but this is another way of doing it. I don't think the take up is going to be massive, um, but you know you'll be able to put in your orders uh, on some platforms for um, to buy gilts and, and you know when they're issued. And, and the advantage, I guess, is that you might get a slightly better price um, at auction or at issuance rather than. Uh, waiting to buy them in the secondary market, but overall, I don't think the um, the difference will be massive. To be honest with you, but it's just a, as I say, another way of the uh, uh, DMO trying to trying to get as much money into the gilt market as possible. That's great. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, will turning to you first. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, what has been a very busy week last week for you? Most of the UK banks reported. There seems to be this renewed focus, I think, on returning cash to shareholders for UK and European banks, which, of course, is welcome news for investors. There was quite a bit of variation within the different results. So if we could break them down, perhaps starting with Barclays, the company generated uh, a lot of headlines and the share price reaction was positive on the day. Uh, what did the market like specifically about their results? And can you give us an idea of how the shares are trading in the recent past? Is this shifting strategy the right one yeah morning uh yeah the q4 results themselves were a bit weak but the shares clearly responded pretty positively to the new targets that barclays put out there and just remember that this was in the context of a very depressed share price so shares trading around five times earnings for example price to tangible book of just 0.5 times so the targets they put out there, these comprised a 12% return on tangible equity, um, risk-weighted assets in the investment bank as a portion of the whole bank will shrink. Um, so they look to that to go towards 50%. Um, so that just improves the balance of the group. The market really doesn't like the leverage that's inherent in the investment bank. And then lastly, as you've highlighted, um, there's that commitment on capital return. So they've talked about 10 billion to shareholders over the next three years. And that's more than 40% of the market cap to put it into context as well. 
So the shares have always traded very cheaply, but I do think there is some real change here. So that capping the contribution from the investment bank. And then there's also an absolute um, capital return target, which the market likes, the 10 billion commitment, and also um, cost cuts. So they've talked about 2 billion of gross cost savings, which will put them towards a kind of high 50s cost income ratio. And they also actually put out some quite punchy revenue targets. I'm not sure the market really buys into that, but I do think the shift in strategy is the right one. And, and you've got that commitment on buybacks, which rewards shareholders in the meantime as well. So, yeah, some, some better news, I think, from Barclays. Yeah, and if we turn to the more Asian-focused UK banks, results a few quarters ago were quite good for the likes of HSBC and Standard Chartered compared to the more domestic UK banks. This week just passed. There was some divergence, though, in the results from HSBC and then from Standard Chartered on Friday. So could you summarise what you might have described as a messy set of results for HSBC and highlight what caused their share price to fall and the bounce in Standard Charters? Yeah, I think there was a bit of positioning going into the results as well. So a reminder that uh, at Q3, Last year, Standard Chartered actually fell very sharply at their results. They they warned on net interest income and net interest margins, while HSBC actually held up a bit better. So, um, yeah, just to put that into context, I think you're right to characterise HSBC's results as quite messy. Um, so they included a write-down of their stake in Bocom. That's a Chinese bank. Um, so that you know created a, a negative one-off. Their guidance was also a bit soft versus expectations, so they they suggested costs might be a bit higher than where the market thought, and they also guided a bit lower on net interest income. So just as a reminder, you know, as, as banks, central banks do start to cut their um, policy rates, that is a headwind for, for banks. Um, they've enjoyed the, the tailwind as rates went up, um, but that will create a headwind going forward. I uh, have to see how much banks have hedged, but that is a, a headwind for the industry. Um, with regard to Standard Chartered, again, the results, I think, were a bit mixed, um, but it's worth highlighting that they did manage to post a return on tangible equity of over 10%. That, that's always something of a, an acceptable threshold, I think, for banks in the market. That was actually the first time they've done that since 2014, again, putting it into context. And they've put some new financial targets out there, too. So they think that return on tangible equity will, will increase from kind of the 10% range at the, they're at, at the moment to 12% in 2026. Um, they also think revenues and net interest income can grow even as interest rates fall. Um, so they're looking for revenue growth of 5 to 7% over the next three years, and they think they'll be at the top end of that range this year. So again, it's, it's something of a differentiator relative to the domestic banks. Remember that they've got stronger GDP growth in their Asian footprint and also kind of stronger wealth creation as well. Um, they've also put out an absolute expense target, which the market likes. And, and again, on capital return, they, they think they can return at least $5 billion uh, to shareholders. So that's about 25% of the market cap. So again, you know, you've got that capital return story with Standard Chartered. Brilliant. And finally, Lloyd. So there's a few moving parts here. There's the ongoing Barclay family telegraph saga. And then they also set aside a provision for the potential costs relating to the FCA's investigation to motor financing. So maybe just a quick summary of 
Lloyd's results, but then a bit more detail on what could be the tip of the iceberg. Um, is £450 million set aside for this enough? Who else is caught up in it? And is, is this the next kind of PPI mis-selling scandal? Yeah, the results themselves were, were kind of broadly in line with expectations, maybe a little bit weak, but all eyes on the FCA's investigation into discretionary commissions and motor financing. So yeah, just by way of background, this gave dealers the flexibility to adjust interest rates offered to customers. Um, so that often led to higher interest rates and higher commissions for the dealers. And the FCA is looking at the, the conflict of interest here and the lack of disclosure um, to see if there's been widespread misconduct. And that followed the, the financial ombudsman finding in favor of a couple of uh, cases um, in favour of the customer, I should say, and ordering the banks to pay compensation. I don't think this is anywhere near the scale of the PPI compensation saga. That cost about 50 billion for the industry, you know, pretty incredible number. But clearly, I think there's a bit of deja vu for the market, and the market's quick to try and price in something of a worst case scenario, whatever that, that may be. Lloyd's is the most expensive exposed on an absolute basis. So remember, they're the market leader in motor financing. And they're the first and only bank actually to make a provision for this issue. So they took a £450 million charge last week. And I think it's a first step towards resolving the uncertainty. And remember, this will cover estimates of you know, the operational or legal costs as well as potential redress. But there's a huge range of uncertainty out there. So, um, you know, the CFO highlighted that on the call, the sensitivities around whether redress is reactive or proactive. You know, do, do Lloyds have to just compensate everyone or do they have to wait for complaints to come in? Um, you know, what the interest rates were actually charged were, for example, um, and how far back the FCA goes as well. So there's just, you know, a huge range of uncertainty out there. I think it's worth highlighting that Lloyds were confident enough that they did announce a further 2 billion share buyback. Um, so, you know, sure that would have been signed off with the regulator so some confidence there in terms of the other banks the most exposed on a relative basis is close brothers and they've already had to cut their dividend um, of the other big banks barclays has a has a modest exposure and there's no exposure at natwest and, and the asian bank so again it's a bit of a a difference from the ppi saga where you know basically all the uk banks were involved uh, this is more um, specific to to a couple of banks, really. Um, we'll have to keep an eye on it, I'm afraid. So the FCA has given themselves nine months to look into this issue. So I think it will be an overhang for those banks that are most affected um, in the meantime. Um, so something to, to keep looking at, I'm afraid. <laughs> thank you very much, Will. Yeah, I guess we'll probably not heard the last of that. So thank you to Will and to Richard for those great insights and to you all for listening. Did you enjoy our discussion on the podcast today? We'd love to hear from our listeners. So please review the show now, wherever you're listening and share it on your socials and tag us at quiltachieviot.com. To make sure you don't miss a future episode, tap the subscribe button. In honour of International Women's Day, ex-Royal Air Force pilot and best-selling author Mandy Hickson will be joining Helen Morrissey and Vanessa Eve to discuss the key themes that intertwine aviation and investment. The webinar will take place on the 26th of March at 11am. So to land your spot for our Sky's the Limit webinar, please sign up via our website or LinkedIn page. 
We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, head over to our website, www.quiltachievit.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview, as well as to subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter. You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on markets, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on our website or on our social media pages. And finally, if you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts for our next podcast, simply ask them via the weekly comments page on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And that's it for today. So thank you again to Richard and to Will for your time and to all of you for listening. See you next time.